9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the uh, late week edition of uh, Deep State Radio, uh, where we are joined, as usual, by my co-host, Ryan Goodman. How are you doing today, Ryan? Pretty well, David. Thanks. Yes, and I didn't introduce myself. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm here in New York City. Uh, we are also joined by another of our uh, favorites and regulars, Kavita Patel, Dr. Kavita Patel, a practicing physician, former Obama White House uh, official. Uh, how are you doing today, Kavita? Oh, another great day in our democracy, David. Another, <laughs> maybe one of the last. Uh, we have a new guest <laughs> um, joining us here today, uh, Katie Barlow. She's a lawyer. She's a journalist. She's a media editor with SCOTUS blog, which covers news for the Supreme Court. Thanks for joining us, Katie. Glad to have you aboard. Thanks for having me. And before I begin, I would like to tell everybody that about 10, 15 minutes in, we will also be joined by our friend, Mimi Roca, who is currently running for district attorney in Westchester um, and doing doing well at that. Her Republican opponent dropped out this week, so she will she will uh, join. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have a lot to talk about. And I, you know, I, I, I do think we will get to uh, how great or not great a day this is in the history of our democracy. Um, but it is also the last day that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's body is uh, lying uh, in state at the Supreme Court. Tomorrow, she will go to lie in state at the U.S. Capitol building, where she will become the first woman in 244 years of American history to be so honored, uh, the first Jewish person to be so honored. Um, uh, today, the President of the United States went to, uh, in the term of uh, art, and I think it's just a euphemism, uh, pay his respects, uh, and booze cascaded down upon him. Um, and I just thought I'd like to go around, uh, get everybody's reaction on the impact of the loss of, uh, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and on the events of the week. And Katie, since you are new, let's start with you. I'll take it. Um, look, the, the impact and the loss is, is still getting processed in Washington, D.C. and throughout the country. And I think we won't even really feel its full effects until we head into a confirmation battle in the coming weeks. Um, she, it's remarkable that she is still shattering glass ceilings, um, even after she's gone, as she's on her way up, um, becoming the first woman to, to lie in state at the Capitol. Um, but I think what's going to happen over the next five weeks, 38 days out from the election day, when president Trump makes his announcement, um, are going to be pivotal for this democracy. I think, uh, the Senate has already hinted they're planning on, uh, voting on his nominee October 26th, um, literally on the eve of the election. Um, and I think shortly after that vote, 
and election day, we will see a challenge legally in our courts to the election. Um, I'm, I can pick a number of things that are already bubbling up in the courts right now that I think we'll see challenged on election day. Um, and if that court, if the Supreme Court has three Trump appointees on it and is a strong, solid 6-3 majority, um, I think our country is in for um, a lot of havoc in, in the weeks after the election and in, in sorting out uh, who actually won. Um, although Ryan will pose questions later because he's a co-host, I just thought I'd start with asking you this question as well, Ryan, because of the role that you play at Just Security and as an attorney, um, uh, uh, wondering what your thoughts were on the departure of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So I, I guess I had two thoughts operating at the same time, and one was thoughts of um, you know grief in a sense um, for her passing, not just because she was an icon and a legend, but she was pivotal um, in basically holding the country together as that important vote on the Supreme Court on a range of issues. And so it's both about the remembrance and the remembrance of an incredible life led. And then at the same time, thinking about all the implications for our country. So what Katie just talked about in terms of the legitimacy of the election um, and uh, what this does to, in a certain sense, the legitimacy of the court long-term to have this rushed nomination before the election, what it does to the legitimacy of the court long-term to have uh, six of the justices on the conservative side of things well out of whack with the American public on political and ideological issues and the significance of it for um, the ways in which Mitch McConnell is using it to drive people to the polls and using those kinds of crass political calculations that the president himself said on Fox News. Yeah, that's a part of the equation, naming who he might choose as a nominee based on swing states and then naming a few swing states so that he could maybe get some more votes out of that by naming them. So one is the grieving for this legend and not just legend, but a pivotal actor. And the other one is thinking about all of these other implications. And last quick thought, I'd love to hear other people talk about this as well, um, but because I'm not sure about my own impression, but my impression was there were some people in the social media space saying, oh, stop everything, just do the first part, the grieving, and you don't. we shouldn't be rushing this other part. And I thought that's coming, I saw from a place in which those people maybe didn't see as much as what was at stake for people in our society. And I worried about that, that in fact, that you know, somebody said we can chew, you can, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And her her dying wish was about this issue, of who would replace her. She understood that both these things are happening at the same time, and we need to have this discussion. So that was one of the ways in which I was torn by what happened without public discourse in the immediate moment of um, the news. Ryan, I just was going to say I, I couldn't agree with you more, both on um, emphasizing that it was her dying wish, um, but also we had several of her former clerks um, on our podcast for SCOTUS blog this week sharing stories about her and, and you know, warm memories. But one of them was um, her clerks that were working for her during the 2016 election and the morning after the election. And they had a very important case that day. They all went to work and then they gathered in her office the morning 
after the arguments were held and, and her clerks, you know, she was just going, talking about the case, going about business as usual. And the clerks at the end of that discussion said, you know, we're having a tough time today. Do you have any words of wisdom? Do you have any thoughts? Can you, can you help us? Um, and she said, look, this is going to get better. We just have to continue to do the work. And that was it. And I think that's exactly what she would say and think right now. I, I don't have the relationship with her that her clerks did. I was lucky enough to have dinner across the table from her several times. And, and I think that's absolutely right. Um, continue to do the work and things will get better. Kavita, what maybe you want to respond to Ryan or, or your own views? No, I, and I've, I've had a chance to, to interact with her and she's a very... As as much as she's a legend, kind of in her own right, fashion icon, you know, known for her like Pilates regimen and just this amazing kind of life that she's led. She was just an incredibly disciplined person. But here's what the loss of her means to me. And I agree, Ryan, 100 percent that it's it's not I, I think this is not the time to compartmentalize. It is the time to think about the consequences for me, her death. And by the way, all of us who understood her medical issues kind of we, I have been worried about this honestly, since 2015, when I saw what happened with Merrick Garland and, and kind of how things went down, you know, starting in 15, 16, starting in 15, when I knew about kind of her medical conditions. But I would say for me, it feel I felt like something, I felt like the unitary state got sealed somehow, that now with her death, kind of giving this president disability to kind of go through what I think started in the Bush administration, we seem to kind of all you know, none of us, but John, you and some of these memories seem like a really distant past. But I think it started in motion. Her death sealed a lot of what I worry about with a unitary state in our in our world today. And that actually does terrify me. Well, let, let me pick up with 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 you again, Kavita, and then go go around to, to each of you um, in terms of the consequences. The reason I want to pick up with you, Kavita, is among the most immediate consequences are they're gonna hear a case on ACA one week to the day after the election. Um, and of course, one of the other big issues has to do with uh, women's right, women's reproductive freedoms, women's right to choose. So there's a, there's a kind of a large healthcare component to what and, and how the federal government treats healthcare at the center of this thing. And it's one of the things most likely it seems to be affected by this 6-3 imbalance. Do you share that concern? Yeah, and I, you know, again, I'm a physician. You've got respected legal scholars on this panel, but I, because I worked on the ACA, I've had to get like incredibly neck deep in it. And I think on the SCOTUS blog, you've had Nick Bagley. There's been a number of people who I trust and they have always said to me that kind of the legal merits of this case prior to Ginsburg's passing were, were not that great. Now, could that mean that we were in trouble in terms of defending the ACA? Yes, absolutely. But people had always reassured me. I think people are also reading into Kavanaugh's kind of past writings about um, his opinion on severability, which is kind of this issue of the individual mandate, which was struck down in the tax law um, does that then create kind of the, uh, which is the claim that Texas and others are making that that invalidates the entire law? Or can you actually have this concept where that part is struck, and but yet the rest of it remains intact? And I think your point, David, that, you know, 
it sounds like obviously a, it, it, a six, three, a lot of people thought, okay, a four, four split goes down to the state worst case scenario um, because people have this insight into what Kavanaugh might say, or Roberts might say, or Roberts might vote with the, with the other justices on keeping the ACA. The six, three dynamic is incredibly frightening. And I think even more so what's incredibly frightening to me is that I'm not so sure that we have a Congress that, you know, I would like to tell you we will have a Congress in 2021 that could quickly usher in some sort of legislation to replace this. I don't think we're going to have that. So what it will do to healthcare, it at my core terrifies me. And the fact that we're talking about this 10 years after we had a legitimate law passed and had a president sign it to me is just baffling. And, and I don't think Americans I worry that Americans are making the conversation about Ginsburg's passing, about women's rights. There's so many reasons for that. But when you factor in the ACA and what its implications might be, it's so it's so much bigger than that. And I'm not saying bigger than women's rights, but it's so massive that I just don't think America understands it. Katie, you want to pick up on that? I couldn't agree more. I mean, we we all have tried to read the tea leaves on your exact point on where Kavanaugh will go. Um, on the severability point, I think um, there there's definitely hope for the ACA. Um, but to your point about um, our focus on uh, her legacy for women's rights, she didn't even want that to be the focus because in her mind, um, women's liberation was men's liberation. And she showed that as an advocate when she took up cases like Charles Moritz's case. Um, it, you know, he was um, trying to take care of her of his elderly mother at the time and couldn't get the caregiver tax deduction. Um, and, and she went to the Supreme court and said, look, this isn't, um, this isn't right. And, um, women and men both need to be able to choose to work in the home and out of the home and share in the joys of both. Um, and so I, I think that legacy is on the line in those healthcare cases. Um, I worry more about the abortion rights cases than the ACA. There's actually a case pending before the Supreme Court right now involving an FDA rule that requires um, women to come in physically to the doctor's office to get um, a, a, an abortion-inducing uh, medication. And um, it's on hold, but there's a battle right now up to the Supreme Court whether or not they're going to require women. Um, they put it on pause because of COVID, so women don't have to go into the office. Um, and and now that's going to th that's before the court, and there's only eight of them to decide. And and Justice Roberts, I think, has made clear um, his thoughts and opinions. Um, on abortion. I think that's something that he cares about deeply. And I don't think that that's something he'll be on um, the side of Ginsburg's legacy on. Um, so I, I worry about that more than I, I worry about the ACA case. So Ryan, let me ask you a question. Uh, one of the things that has come up even in the past 24 hours is that this court may be called upon to resolve disputes that have to do with the upcoming election. Um, and I noticed, you know, for example, there was one of those classic Lindsey Graham moments where he said, you know, I'm for a smooth transfer of power, but I, you know, I think, you know, we need to have a full court in order to make sure that happens. In other words, I'm all for a smooth transfer of power if I can rig the court so that, that, so that the outcome can be the one that I want. Um, what are your concerns about that in the current context? So I think there are so many concerns, um, you know, and the president himself has said it as well, that he wants this ninth, ninth justice 
in order to have somebody in place for all the post 11-3 litigation. And as Katie mentioned, there are just, there are more kinds of cases you could possibly, that, that we could even possibly talk about in this um, podcast that might be litigated to the court and decide the outcome of the presidential election in a way in which, um, as Katie had also alluded to, if it is a 6-3 decision, or even a 5-4 decision, and the Trump appointees vote in favor of Trump, it's just what that will do to rock the country. And especially if it is actually clear in other respects that Trump has lost. So it's not that it is unclear, and then they make that deciding call, but that it is clear that he has lost, but they have frivolous or outlandish or unusual uh, legal claims that are then vindicated in a very political way by the court is that's, you know, what many people read to be in the Bush v. Gore legacy. And um, I, I, I just, I mean, there's so many ways in which there's a dark future ahead. Just one small implication of it as well that also ties back to the court. I mean, does John Roberts want a court in which Trump is installed in a way that's under this cloud? And then maybe there's another um, replacement on the court. Uh, Justice Breyer's 82 years old. He might not um, stay on the court for the next four years. And then you have um, eight, I'm sorry, seven justices, right? That are you know highly conservative justices, and that's what decides monumental decisions for our country, in a way that I think it does start to raise these questions about the legitimacy of the court um, in such profound ways. So, um, let alone we can also start to discuss you know the court packing strategies or the jurisdiction stripping strategies that start to then come up if this is in fact uh, the new world in which we live in, um, and I would imagine that. And, and Justice Roberts, for all his times in which he's navigated it to for the legitimacy of the court to be that fifth vote and then in another direction, doesn't have that power anymore when there are six or seven uh, justices that are the conservative wing of the Supreme Court. So I think there's so many you know, effects that are not even just for the next election, but are for a generation uh, to come. Um, you know, I, had, I did the pod, a special pod yesterday with Cecile Richards, the former head of Planned Parenthood. And we were talking a little bit about this and she was maintaining a very positive attitude where, you know, maybe we can block this person. Maybe we can delay this. Uh, and I, and I have to say, I, I was not like super supportive of that. I, I, I supportive of her instinct in this regard, but, uh, but she was talking about um, this. And I said, look, the, the, the it's going to be a six, three court. They're going to get through to what they want. And, um, and the question is, what do you do about that? You know, what, what do you do about it once it's a 6-3 court? Shouldn't we be developing strategies for that rather than um, taking to our fainting couches about their hypocrisy? Um, uh, now, I see that Mimi Roca has joined us. Um, and um, at least I, I can see her because we do this by Zoom. Can I hear her? Are you there, Mimi? I'm here. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we 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 can. Well, welcome, Mimi. Of course, is a candidate for Westchester District Attorney. And as I said, by the way, at the beginning, Mimi, you seem to be making progress with this, even without an election, since the Republican candidate seems to have dropped out this week. Um, uh, 
so congratulations on your progress. Thank you. Yes, it's a uh, it's a new way to do uh, to do elections. Just scare them away. Yeah, yeah no, you're you're terrifying. But um, uh, let, let me, you know we've been talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the consequences of her departure, and we've been talking about some of the consequences for ACA and 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 Roe v. Wade, but also consequences for the the coming election. But it does then raise the question of what do you do about it? And maybe I can pose this question to you first. You know, sh- should the focus be, we need to make Roe v. Wade the law of the land, this needs to be a priority within the Congress? Should the focus be um, writing more things into law, particularly since right now it looks like uh, if, if we extrapolate out, Democrats actually have a pretty good chance of taking back the Senate. Is there another approach um, or is this just the beginning of a dark chapter in in U.S. history in this regard, in your view, Mimi? Um, well, I, I'm hesitating only because I think those are, are maybe two separate questions, but um, I'll answer what I think to be sort of the first part of that first, which is, yes, I think that absolutely, if we have a Democratic Senate, um, uh, I'll say when we have a Democratic Senate, um, we need to see more things codified into law that previously were, um, you know, both with respect to uh, reproductive health, but and, and Roe v. Wade, but also, and, and forgive me if you already talked about this, but with respect to what the executive branch, what the president can and cannot do, which I know, you know, they've already. I forget what what it's called that Adam Schiff um, unveiled recently, uh, the Ethics or Government Integrity Act or something like that. Um, you know, so many of the things that we relied on, just the good faith and and uh, sort of customs, tradition, norms, um, integrity of elected officials. We 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 can't rely on that anymore. I think that's clear. I'm not saying we should. That you know, we have to be careful to not go too extreme. Obviously, which tends to happen in reactionary uh, legislation, uh, per- legislative periods like that. Like this would be, but you know, at the same time, I, I think we we have to um, put more things in stone, basically. Okay, so let me. I, I think what I what, what I think we should do from here on is I'd like to pick up with the same question for Katie and Kavita. What do we do from here? Get brief answers on that. And then Ryan, I'll turn to you for a round of questions for Mimi, Katie and Kavita. Um, But Katie, again, this question, let's assume that there's a 6-3 court. So I'm deeply hesitant of any of the suggestions to pack the court. One, I think that's an easy Um, topic of conversation to have right now in this fear and reactionary mode that everyone is in. Um, I think actually accomplishing that would take a great deal of political will and clout and ability. Um, And and then actually examining the repercussions of that um, when and if uh, the flip political dynamic happens down the road. And I think what's important to remember from Justice Ginsburg Um, Later in her career, she became the great dissenter. She became the leader of the liberal bloc that was in 
the minority on the court. And she thought of her dissents as writing them for a future court that looked back and realized that their colleagues got it wrong. And I think that that's what's going to happen for the three um, on the liberal block um, once we do get to a 6-3 court. And I agree with you. I think it's happening. Um, I think everyone needs to prepare for it to happen. Um, I'm just deeply hesitant of, of these um, grand ideas about packing the court at this point. Kavita, reaction to this? What should we do? And then over to Ryan for another round. Yeah, I, I agree. But by the way, my only flirtation with this in reality came when I worked for Senator Kennedy, who was on judiciary and and uh, personally, he he was always pretty vocal. Like it's exactly what Katie said, even though it might be tempting, we really have to think what would happen if everything were on the other side, so to speak. And and he was also kind of very vocal against trying to have these reactionary ideas. I would just say that I would shift focus on not the Supreme Court, but doing away with the filibuster proof majority. I, I would say there's some other things that could be incredibly important for our democracy and would actually put us on the right path to see things accomplished for Americans that we need. Yeah, I will just add parenthetically here, here on the filibuster. Um, uh, Ryan, why don't you do a round of, of Mimi, Katie and Kavita, and then I'd like to end maybe three, four minutes early and turn to Kavita to get a bit of a, a take on where we are in the worsening COVID crisis. Well, actually, I guess, Katie, I just want to pick up on something you um, said at the outset about litigation around the election. Um, so I think, you know, one of the major things that happened this week that we could talk about is the president of the United States in answering a direct question about whether or not he would um, leave power peacefully if he lost, uh, said he doesn't know it all depends, essentially. Um, then his uh, press secretary today was asked the same question. And her answer was that uh, President Trump would, of course, respect the outcome of a free and fair election. Um, which doesn't answer the question because for the last several days, weeks, the president has been doing a drumbeat of saying that this is not a fair election, that the ballots are on their own uh, mailing ballots and the unsolicited ballots are illegitimate. Um, and I guess the big question is now that we're we you know, also had this piece in the Atlantic talking about some of the litigation that Americans should be prepared to see around the election. Um, and I think it'd be just good to try to anticipate some of that and speak to the listeners about what they might expect in terms of legitimate or illegitimate um, uses, uses of litigation around uh, the election by um, people on the side of the president, they are going to potentially try to call it into question in terms of whether it's legitimate or fair and what the strategy is uh, behind those kinds of moves in the, by taking it to the courts. So I think a couple of things um, that we're already seeing happen um, are COVID-related um, coping mechanisms that these states are implementing um, in allowing many states are trying to expand access to the polls, expand access to mail-in ballots, 
and we're seeing these cases go um, to the to the appellate courts, and a few have already come up to the Supreme Court, um, dealing, allowing this expansion or denying this expansion of access. I think two things to keep an eye on are going to be the 26th Amendment, um, which you know allows um, it, it lowered the voting age to 18 years old, but you also can't um, deny it access based on age. And we're seeing a lot of folks over the age of 65 and even some states that are trying to mandate mail-in ballots for folks that are over the age of 65 that feel uncomfortable going to the polls in this COVID era. Um, I think that is an area that's going to be ripe for litigation in the coming days. And on election day, we'll see what the lines look like and how people feel safe and um, if people feel able to actually um, carry out their their right to vote. Um, another area I think is going to be um, how we count the mail-in ballots. Um, and, and that's up to states. And there's so much discretion to the individual workers to decide to reject um, an individual mail-in ballot. It, it can be something as simple as a signature looks a little bit askance. Um, and so how we count all of these votes um, is, is also going to be an area that is ripe for challenge on election day and afterward. So Mimi, just following through on that, um, on Twitter, you had talked a little bit about in response to a tweet thread that Asha Rangappa had um, about the president trying to call the legitimacy of the election into doubt um, in terms of already kind of preparing the, the field by starting that rhetoric now. Um, and what, you know, same question, essentially, like, what do you think Americans should be anticipating on the night of the election and in the days following the election, given what we can already see as uh, Trump's strategy here um, of trying to cast this whole thing into doubt or at least cast one form of uh, mail-in ballots into doubt? So I sort of have a split personality on this issue or you know, however you wanna um, describe it. And, and I imagine a lot of people do, because on the one hand, I retweeted Asha's thread, which talked about, you know, don't let him define the narrative, don't let Trump define the narrative just because he'll say it's illegitimate doesn't make it so, right? It's only empowered if we all talk about it and the press talks about it, um, if there's no real mechanism for him to do it. And I saw a lot of similar threads, some even more extreme saying, you know, you all are, are in, enabling him by even having the outrage that you have. And on the other hand, I retweeted and, and tweeted and, and have been thinking about, you know, we have to shine a light on this. Like when, when the reporter asked him, do you, will you accept a, a, um, the results of the election? This was yesterday. And he said, no, no, no. And then the next report, I was, I was waiting. Okay, the next report is gonna follow up on that, right? But they didn't. They moved on to Supreme Court, and then the next. And I was like, "Wait a minute! How can, if you were a reporter in that room, shouldn't they just say, hold on? Nobody's asking any other question until the President of the United States answers this question. Are you? Are we? You know, really making a big deal out of it? And those two things feel sort of at odds. Those two points of view." But I think maybe they're not. And I think that's sort of the, the, the we have to find the balance and the reconciliation of that. We can't pretend he isn't saying this because in and of itself, him saying it is, frankly, an abuse of his, I think, position um, and, and certainly trust. Um, the 
the the difference though between talking about him saying it and how wrong it is is different than giving it power after the election, right? So leading up to it, I think we prepare ourselves by shining a light on it and talking about how wrong it is and why it's wrong and why he can't do this and single-handedly anyway. But we are gonna have to deal possibly with the reality of can he do something? I mean, he can't overturn a, a, a legitimate election, which this will be even by mail, um, but he can cause trouble if emboldened by, you know, Senate Republicans and possibly by a court. So, you know, we, we have to, um, I think, think of all the worst case scenarios, prepare for them, call it out now what isn't the, uh, call out now what is not the, uh, the end, right? Like the end is not because Donald Trump says, well, you know, I, I invalidate this election. But there are certain worst case scenarios that that could come into play. And we have to, at this point, I think we'd be sticking our heads in the sand to not prepare for those. So I don't know if I quite answered that, but I, I think there's a tension here and we have to acknowledge that and talk about both parts of that. So Kavita, the, you know, the one question I wanted to ask you about is the kind of this, what you're thinking in terms of the state of where we're at with uh, coronavirus. Um, in part, you know, in your tweet thread, you were talking about one of the particular issues and you said, let's not take our eye off of what the president would like us not to focus on, which is 200,000 Americans dead. Uh, and that's the milestone that we passed this week um, with a projection of many more um, American deaths to come uh, before the end of the year if there's not sufficient use of masks and things like that, which there currently aren't. So. Um, what, you know, what is your outlook in terms of where we're, the current trajectory that we're on um, with respect to what's happening in some of the college towns where there are outbreaks, but maybe a bright light um, in the sense of, or a bright spot in terms of uh, lower schools, there's fewer incidents than everybody expected. Um, and, and just to throw one other piece into it is also the policy issues that you've been uh, reflecting on this past week with respect to the CDC warnings going up and then coming back off the site or HHS's control over a vaccine and what that means for uh, So both the where we're at with the pandemic and then also some of the policy pieces of this would be very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, and I'll do kind of like just very briefly. So number one, where are we with coronavirus and cases. We are seeing overall kind of, I'll call it a stabilization with the infectivity rate, the R naught. And, but it's, it is in certain parts of the country, Midwest and, and California and parts of Texas, we are now seeing an increase. So it's what we've all kind of been worried about that as parts of the country kind of recess, there are gonna be hotspots that enable an uptick and affect the country's numbers overall. Here are the things that scientists across the world are incredibly concerned about are concerned about what's happening in Europe and in parts of Asia, because as past as has predicted that could somehow come our way. There's been some things made in the scientific news about a different virus strain. There is a different strain, but we don't think it's created a scenario where we have a mutation that's significant enough that we have to worry about. Um, so that's, that's the virus. The second is the vaccine. In, in good news, I would just say that 
um, you know, Johnson and Johnson has been the fourth company to enter in the United States into phase three trials. And what's good about that is that it looks incredibly promising. We will have a vaccine from at least one, maybe more manufacturers. The Johnson and Johnson one has gotten a lot of attention in scientific communities because it's one dose and doesn't have these incredibly complex um, freezer ultra cold requirements for storage, which is very important as someone who gives people vaccines. We just don't have that kind of freezer capacity in our clinics and pharmacies in this country. So that's kind of one, but then to the third point, Ryan, I, I have now found out that, you know, people inside of OIRA, which is the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs, and people around Trump have been the ones that have brought the attention to the president that the that they can kind of, quote, override the FDA's authorities around vaccine approval. And that, to me, if, if there was one nail in the coffin for me, it's that one. And so you are now seeing an outcry I'm even defending Steve Hahn, who I think has done a terrible job as a commissioner, but made it clear in a congressional hearing to the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee this week that he was going to have an outside, it's a common procedure they do at the FDA to have an outside group as an advisory process in public deliberate over the data. So for Trump to say that and people to dismiss that as, oh, Trump's just being the president, they're mistaken. There are incredibly senior people inside the administration who are actively trying to figure out how they can actually do exactly what the president said, where, you know, that looks like political interference, what the FDA is doing, and I will approve a vaccine. And, and now I would just finish by saying for the sake of time, what Governor Cuomo did today is a clarion call, a declaration that you cannot trust the federal government is absolutely kind of, even though I understand why he did it, it is going to create chaos in what could be a very promising 2021 if we have a vaccine that has been transparently deliberated and is safe and effective. Um, you know, I, I tweeted earlier this week um, that I thought the October surprise was going to be COVID. And in other words, I said it was going to be the same surprise as the surprise every other month this year, because if it re rebound, rebounds, um, it'll have a massive effect. Um, but of course, there are a lot of other things that could change. Um, we have the debate starting. Uh, we have a president who seems hell-bent on cheating. Um, uh, we live in a volatile world. We've got just about five minutes uh, I'd like to go to each of the four of you and just in a minute or 90 seconds, get a sense of what you're worried about as far as October surprises go, starting with Katie. I think it's fairly clear now that our October surprise is going to be Justice Amy Coney Barrett. <clears throat> and I think she will get confirmed the week before the election. And I think that will all be happening while a lot of the country is continuing to mourn the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so um, the apex of that anger and frustration um, is going to, to hit the week before the election. And we are going to have a new justice on the Supreme Court, one that is deeply opposed um, politically and ideologically to the one whose seat she will be taking. Um, and I think that that will make for a pretty rough run up to November 3rd. Wow. Mamie? So, yeah, I mean, I think in some ways we've had the October surprise 
early and now the fallout will go, you know, well into October. The surprise being, unfortunately, with, you know, the justices uh, passing. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a um, political analyst, so, you know, I, I don't know that this is right, but for what it's worth, it seems to me that maybe they don't get the new justice confirmed um, in time, but they hold it open so that it is a, ideally for Republicans, a motivating factor for their base. I mean, that, that right now is my concern is that people who wouldn't have voted for Trump um, because they see him for who he is will now once again, hold their nose because they see and vote for him because they see the concrete, I mean, it was always there, but the concrete possibility of a justice that they want to see on the Supreme Court. Um, so again, you know, I don't, I don't know which strategy. I think either one is a strategy they could pursue. Um, but that one, in terms of the overall election, scares me more. And that's just, you know, again, not from a, a background of a political analyst, but just reading tea leaves, basically. <laughs> <laughs> all, all one of them <laughs> all two yeah <laughs> hey look you're the only democratic candidate i know of that has scared away all her opponents so we we take we take we take we take your your advice seriously here kavita yeah i i i kind of i have to say mimi i share your doesn't it make sense strategically to hold this out so that you can actually get turnout and get the base but i completely agree. I would say I still think just based on the progress of some of the trials, I still think an October surprise could be a very narrow um, emergency authorization for a vaccine and the president taking a victory lap and get being and the market rallying, by the way, the stock market rallying on news of that and being able to kind of do a dance and say, you know, look at me, I've cured COVID essentially going into what I think I think Biden's going to get beaten up on some of these debates and have Biden moments that Trump will take advantage of. So combine those two October surprises. And I'm very concerned about the outcome of the election as a result of that. Brother. Ryan, what, 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 what do you think is in store? Um, well, I would, I mean, I, what I truly think is in store is actually just what Kavita said. So I'm not going to, trying to say something different in a sense. I think my worry is that there's this premature announcement about a vaccine that's false. And even forgetting about the implications for the election, that's gonna cost lives because destroying American trust in a vaccine is devastating uh, for the eventual vaccine that truly works. Um, so both what that means for an October surprise, because it's based on false hope and false claims to get somebody elected, and but more devastatingly, the public health consequences of such a crass move. Okay, well, certainly we will be here. We will be talking about all of this over the course of the next few weeks. We'll be doing three or four podcasts a week from now through the election as we try to do deep dives into these issues, as well as our regular Monday and Thursday podcasts. We hope you will um, join us for those. If you want more information about them, go to the dsrnetwork.com. 
uh, uh, where we will keep you up to date. And also you can go and click on membership and support us by becoming a member. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, uh, I think uh, we are well served by having conversations uh, at this level by people who are at this level. And so I would like to conclude by thanking you, Katie, by thanking you, Mimi, by thanking you again, Kavita, and by thanking you, Ryan, for joining us. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening and stay well. <laughs>